Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about With Nail and I. This 1987 film is celebrated as a cult classic for its depiction of self-destructive young Englishmen at the end of the 1960s. We discuss how creator Bruce Robinson got it made and whether it congratulates its characters for their alcoholism or criticizes their generation and the end of that era's British culture. You can go to patreon.com slash supercontext to leave a comment with your favorite line from With Nail and I, or you can write us an email at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com. Have you seen it? Are you going to see it? What is your blood alcohol content level? So Chris, I'm not a fan of Wikipedia. Uh, I have a lot of problems with the sort of echo chamber of, you know, someone cites something from Wikipedia in an article and then that article becomes the, you know, the secondary source for Wikipedia. And then eventually people start saying, oh, yeah, uh, Alec Baldwin was in the Limp Biscuit video for Break Stuff. OK, but does your obligatory librarian? Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I was thinking about how With Nail and I is a quote unquote cult film. Uh huh. And it's been a while since I really thought about cult films or a cult film that I watch or anything like that. I, I, you know, it's just sort of Rocky Horror Picture Show is over here, Mm -hmm. you know, like settled in. And then uh, Big Lebowski and that whole convention they do every year is over here. And okay, I don't really need to worry about cult films anymore. But then I said, okay, let me go to uh, let me go to the Internet and ask it. What is a cult film? Who has defined, who has codified cult film? And I discovered in Wikipedia that no one, it's just a thing that people say, and it's taken on a lot of meanings and people try to formalize it. And it's formal definition is far too big to really have any meaning. It's interesting because I always assumed that it was pretty easily defined since it was like a category in video stores when we were growing up, like if you worked at a video store, you had to know which films to shelve on the cult shelf. That's right. And I think this is where it's, if you have to ask, you'll never know. Mm, I don't know. I can't describe a cult film, but I know one when I see it. See, I just assume it's, I could be wrong here. I've always assumed a cult film is a film that wasn't wildly successful during its theatrical release and has become more successful in its home video release than it was uh, when it was originally brought to the public. There are many films like that, though, that don't get cult status. Would you call The Thing a cult film? Well, see, now I don't know. See, I think it's a cult film, yeah. Yeah. Because of because of that criteria. Well, look, I know I know that we pay dues and we do the sacrifice every year. You know, I, I always <laughs> like that particular convention, but yeah, no, I don't know. I, you know, a cult film, yes, it has that established, not very popular, and then intensely popular. Mm-hmm. But I think also some people don't they don't let just a regular movie. It has to be Buckaroo Banzai 
or Rocky Horror or The Thing. You know, there's certain science fiction or extraordinary, you know, circumstances in the story of the film. So what you're to... talking about, it sounds to me, is is not only do they have to be successful after their original release, but they also have to have a fandom that has an identity built up around the film. That's where it really gets into... That's where the rubber meets the road, okay. the identity, so, I think. So that, I think, is interesting in respect to, with Neil and I, because as we'll talk about in this episode, this film was successful when it came out. Uh, successful enough. Yeah, yeah. but um, has a, a cult following now and a fandom associated with it that has like uh, created their own sets of meaning about the film. Yeah. Uh, so... You have been hearing about With Nail and I for years. <laughs> yeah. No, I first heard about it uh, through this show. We've had many listeners tell us that we should do an episode on this. That's why we scheduled it for the last couple months that we're, we're doing Super Context. Um, I can't remember who it was who first recommended it, but it's come up multiple times. You've seen it. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. And what did you think of it? This is the subjective part. I thought it was fine. Um, I can understand why someone would really get into it and attach meaning to it in their early 20s, um, especially closer to its release date. So I'm, a, I'm thinking of people like you who were probably uh, in college w- w- watching this on VHS while they were drinking Chris, you don't have to hold back. You can say it. I saw it in the nineties in the nineties. Um, uh, but so my, my point is, is that like I watched it and I was like, yeah, this is fun. Um, I watched it in like a unpleasant manner because it's incredibly difficult to get a hold of here in the States, especially right now during the coronavirus. That Uh, was wild. When you sent me a message saying, Hey, how do I get this? It seems like it's only in one place. And I, I admit I know that you can find things. I know that you're mm. not an idiot when it comes to media. Um, but I did have a moment of like, well, surely it's, surely you can get it. It's, it's Chris. the only paid streaming looking. service it's on is the Criterion channel. Um, and if you go to get a Blu-ray or a DVD, it's kind of like, oh, these are all region two. Yep. The, right. So for people in America, it's difficult. I should qualify. Um, and uh, I eventually found that somebody ripped it on daily motion. And so I watched the whole thing on my computer on dailymotion.com, uh, wow. which means that there were no subtitles available and the audio was pretty poorly ripped. So, oh, wow. So you didn't actually see this movie. I mean, I didn't really feel <laughs> like I got the full punch of the dialogue, you know? Right. Um, I picked up what was going on and everything and then doing the research, obviously uh, I was just making fun of you off air. People love to quote this film. Uh, and, and so, you know, I got some of the big quotes through the research, but in general watching it, I was just kind of like, okay, I get it. Like, this is fun. Um, but I didn't see it as like cause to be a great other than that, like looking at it in retrospect, you can go, Oh wow, this is really neat. How it like, watched the careers of Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann. Did you um, hear anything that you did not know originated in With Nail and I, in particular, like phrases? Uh, no, no. Okay. I, I mean, these are not the kind of quotes that, that I <laughs> would be exposed to. And, and, and that leads me to my, my question for you. 
Um, so I was watching this and I was like, oh, okay. It's this kind of film. Um, (laughs) and so I have this question for you and it's a genuine question. I'm not trying to be snarky or mean. I know. I know. Why is it that some people who drink spend so much time celebrating their drinking? I'm not saying celebrating while they're drinking. I'm saying celebrating the fact that they drink. It's almost self-congratulatory. This like Mm -hmm. back padding of like, hey, can you believe it? We're so, we spend so much time doing this thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, and most of the audience knows, I I don't drink. I haven't in, geez, over 20 years. Um, And so oftentimes when I go out, if I go to a bar with friends, they get a little squirrely about me sitting there and not drinking. Um, They get self-conscious about it. And I have many friends who do what is going on in this film, who just talk about their drinking more than the drinking. Yes. Um, I think you should change a couple words in your question. Okay. Uh, Why do some people who have a death wish spend so much time thinking about it? That's, that's you. I did not want to be that, um, judgmental about it because i don't oh, yeah, yeah i no. don't think that's the case with everyone but but, but if the audience isn't here. aware you used to be like this and yeah. you aren't anymore suicidally drunk yes <laughs> but on top of that i think that even without the kind of uh clear alcohol abuse right that there is uh a streak in all of us of sort of self-abnegation self-negation um and that there is a way to celebrate that or there are multiple ways to celebrate that and one of them is substance abuse of some kind Mm -hmm. and you can get what's the what's the line from fear and loathing you know once you get locked into a pretty serious drug collection it's hard to get out of it yeah something like that yeah and i think that that's this is just one facet of the diamond of the kind of anti-life sort of drive. It's the anti-life equation. Whoa, I I feel like I stepped into something. I may I may I step back? May I jete from whatever it is that I just said? Here, and, I'll, I'll and help, try again. I'll help you. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up fear and loathing because this movie gets compared to fear and loathing a lot. Uh, we'll talk about why I thought it was interesting because I saw fear and loathing in my early twenties and I love that movie and I saw it. I, I was not a drinker when I saw it. Yeah. Um, or a drug user, which I mean, you were not a hallucinogenic yeah. user, which is probably more the key to fear and loathing. And I think that, um, I think that fear and loathing works for me now on a different level than with nail and I seems to work. Because, and this may just be because of Hunter S. Thompson's mission, because of of how it operates as a critique of American culture and politics. Interesting for such a not American movie. Yeah, right? And this film didn't feel like that to me. But then reading the research, it's clear that it, it very much feels like that to people in the UK. That when they watch this, they see it as... Uh, a condemnation of class and of the right, 60s right. and this a certain kind moment. of mentality. 
This is the moment where the, the water broke, where the high tide hit and washed back, same as Thompson said about fear and loathing. Mm. Um, and and if, I, if I confused anyone, including myself, I should say, uh, Fear and Loathing is a very American movie. I was just surprised that a very not American movie like Withnail and I could then feel like Fear and Loathing to you. Well, I mean, not only is it like a buddy comedy about two people on a, a journey who are just like self-destructing, but uh, production-wise, like the, Terry Gilliam was involved in the production company that made Withnail and I, and uh, it was clearly aware of it and was probably referencing it down the road when he made Fear and Loathing. And we'll see later on in the notes, Johnny Depp is a huge fan of this film as well. And yeah. I think he brought that as well to, with, to, to Fear and Loathing. Yeah. And so the last thing I want to say about the, the larger question, you know, why do people who drink spend time celebrating it? Uh, I think it's very hard to, um, to declare in the middle of destroying yourself. You know, I recognize I'm destroying myself and it's terrible. Mm. It's much easier to say this action, which sets me apart or this action, which gives some kind of, um, uh, transcendent structure to my life. Mm -hmm. Right. Is something above and beyond regular experience. Yeah, so that's something interesting to me, that the act of self-destruction becomes a part of your identity, and then something yeah. like this comes along, and regardless of whether it was the attention of the creator, which it does not seem it was, we'll, we'll hear a lot from him shortly, uh, this becomes almost a totem for people whose identity is about self-destruction. And my last thing to say about this, uh, I recently rewatched Groundhog Day. Okay. And I had such a self-realization at how little I liked Phil before he became, you know, locked in the loop and started to become a better person. Mm. Whereas when I first saw Groundhog Day, I thought Bill Murray's so cool. Listen to how sharp he is. Listen to how, you know, oh, wow, really? and, and cool and standoffish. I just thought he was cool. Yeah. And Phil is a self-hating asshole no he's a horrible person yeah. yeah that's the the theme of the movie is that he has to become a better person <laughs> and so there's a moment uh when whatever i was doing that made me feel like phil was a hero of one kind and became a hero of another i changed and i lost that ability to see a hero in that mm, mm -hmm. and i think that for a lot of folks with nail is a hero of some kind oh for sure and we'll get into that um but they can potentially stop thinking that if their own conditions change. Yeah, and I think that seems to be the case as well. There's there's some real interesting cultural identity stuff to unpack with this film. Um, I think, too, you're, you are inadvertently bringing up something that is also going to be part of the conversation, which is this is clearly a film that uh, could only be made by straight white men and about <laughs> straight white men. Right. Okay, good. Let's put that up there on the shelf. Yeah. And let's get into it. So With Nail and I is a 1987 film that was written and directed by Bruce Robinson, and it stars Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann. Um, uh, I assume this movie came out in the 90s, but it turns out it's late 80s. 
I guess maybe it was the 90s when it got its, the ball got rolling, really, with it. Well, I think that it influenced filmmakers who made their movies in the 90s. That's mm-hmm. the deal. You mm-hmm. know, like, in 1987, it happened, and then everyone who was in high school thought, oh, I want to fucking make this movie when I get out. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Uh, so Bruce Robinson, not somebody I'm super familiar with. He's an English director, a screenwriter, a novelist, and an actor. He also directed The Rum Diary, which is essentially like a prequel sequel to Fear and Loathing. So that's another connection with that. Uh, and he wrote the screenplay for The Killing Fields. That blew me away. Yeah. Uh, and he also he did acting and he starred in a apparently well-received 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet. So I would say that he is not as famous or as good at all of those things, director, screenwriter, novelist, and actor, mm-hmm. right? He's I think he's a killer much, writer. Yeah, he's pretty much known for being able to pull with nail and eye off yeah. and then has been kind of, um, I wouldn't say milking it, but that that was the launch well, he'll, of, of his career. He'll, he'll give us the trajectory, and it, it's interesting because I, I think in a lot of ways he resents this film now. <laughs> Yeah, because um, it, it, it's doing something very different than he set out to do. Yeah. Uh, so he went on after With Nail and I to make movies like How to Get Ahead in Advertising, Jennifer 8, In Dreams, and Return to Paradise. I have seen none of those. Oh. I'm only aware of maybe one of them before today. Yeah, I didn't realize that Jennifer 8 was his. And Jennifer 8 was almost a great movie. Okay. And uh, in dreams, I know I saw that, but I don't remember it at all. Yeah, I, all of this stuff skipped me by. I, but this film with Nail and I is the one that just everybody attaches to him, even though he's done all this work since then. It's based on his own experience of living as an out of work actor in Camden Town during the end of the 60s. It is a black comedy. It's bleak. It's funny. It's about, I mean, the plot is relatively simple. Two roommates who are out of work actors uh, decide to go on a vacation to the countryside. And everything goes wrong because one of them is like a, a just self-destructive alcoholic in the worst way. Yeah. And it's funny. It wasn't to you. Was it funny to you? Yeah. Or was it? No, there's yeah. there's some good bits in there. Yeah, I th- I thought there was some. I mean, the dialogue is very well written. It's clever. It's, it's full of wit and sharpness and yeah. surprise in sort of a psychological way. Like the the way that people respond to things is not pat. Right. It doesn't. You're not expecting this to happen and then it happens. There's there's a yeah. lot of um, and there's also a lot of like detail of each beat in the the story mm-hmm. you know like it's it's not real time in any way but it's it's very careful with each of the things you get to see you know there's enough trivia for every scene to fill a whole director's commentary you know for a regular movie yeah this is a quote from the research the whole thing's become enshrined in cinema folklore uh and we'll get into some of this stuff some of it's relevant some of it i skipped over like Richard E. Grant, for instance, can't drink alcohol without getting violently ill. Yeah, he's missing an enzyme of some kind. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then uh, there's this rumor that Bruce Robinson wouldn't uh, t- do any take that made the crew laugh. So, like, they purposely were trying to be as deadpan as possible on set, apparently. So, okay. Uh, again, like, I think the l- trivia legend stuff around it isn't as much about the film as it is about the people watching it. But we'll get further into that. Yeah, and we shouldn't... We should just state right at the outset, this is not going to be a detailed description of all of the weird little ins and outs of the of the filming. That's out there. There are books written yeah. about how With Nail and I was made. We want to talk about this from a bit of a distance and try and find the super context stuff in With Nail and I. So uh, Robinson talks about he's looking back on the time that he was writing about and he points out that you know Camden at that time was totally different than it is now and he says quote there was an entirely different species of resident there uh he wrote this in 1969 1970 so it didn't come out for almost 20 years after he wrote it he wrote it contemporaneous with his experience of that time yeah um he says this it was a particularly vicious winter I had no heat. All I had was an Oxfam overcoat and a light bulb. I used to swipe abandoned vegetables off Camden Market. There were always apples and turnips that were just hanging about when they would close on Saturday. It was awful. (laughs) I was left with no money, no food, a gas oven, one light bulb, and a mattress on the floor. I was an actor, and I couldn't get a job. So one day I came to the flat, and it was snowing, and I started weeping and screaming at the floorboards. I was begging the god of equity, or any fucking god, you know, to help me. And then it really made me laugh, the predicament that I was in. I laughed hysterically over it. And I had this typewriter that I used to try and write poetry on. I sat down, and I started writing this story about my predicament, involving me and my friend, who had now gone. I mean, that that sounds like... That sounds like a universal artist story. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why With Nail and I resonates with so many people. Uh, And he'll talk about this later on, and so does Richard E. Grant. Most people uh, have a moment in their lives that they can relate to With Nail and I and Robinson's moment here because they have been poor and had to pull themselves up from it, right? Uh, I, I was thinking about this while I was watching this movie, and I've mentioned it several times on the show. I've talked to you about it off air. I lived in utter fucking squalor yeah. throughout my early 20s. Uh, I lived in conditions that just were appalling <laughs> in retrospect. I remember one place I lived in, which I believe there were nine people sharing one half of a house. I lived in the attic uh, and I slept on a mattress on the floor <laughs> and... Yeah. Um, I remember coming down one day to go to work and I walked through the dining room and there was a rat crawling around on one of the, um, cupboards. And I just looked at it and was like, yeah, that makes sense. I went to work <laughs> and the rat didn't scamper. He looked no, at you and he was he like, didn't even. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This was the place I've talked about before where like, uh, at night when I would go to the bathroom, I would have to clap my hands together before right. I turned on the lights to make the silverfish scatter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I think about this all the time. And I, I imagine that I said this the last time you told me, you know, these details of the, the house. There was a time in the 60s when you could live much cheaper than you can now. Mm-hmm. And I have read many uh, residents of the 60s talk about the moment that the oil crash came in the early 70s mm-hmm. and changed what it was like to live a artist or um, uh, edgy or, you know, countercultural life. Yeah. Like it went from you being being able to um, pay your rent and buy your food on tips from wherever you were working into something completely different. And so people attempting to live like their heroes 20 years later discovered that they they could not manage it. Mm-hmm. You know, they you had to get nine people in that half a house instead of the two people it would have been in the 60s or the, you know, the four sculptors taking over an entire floor of a factory in uh, New York in the late 60s working on their stuff who could afford it because it hadn't yet the economy hadn't yet contracted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he goes on to say this actually was written originally as a novel, not as a screenplay. Uh, a friend of his gave the novel to a producer, I guess, who wanted Robinson to make it into a comedy television show. And then another guy came along and said, actually, this would make a great movie in 1980. So seven years before the film came out, that person gave Robinson money to adapt the script. But then the prob- the, the whole project was in limbo for six years. Now, we should point out, those couple sentences, that's ten years. If he wrote it in 1970, yep. then, you know, someone wanted him to adapt it into a TV series. Someone wanted him to do a movie. That's ten years to 1980. And then Robinson gets some money to make a script out of it. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into limbo. And eventually... And here's the sort of the wild what turn. Mm-hmm. The Beatle, George Harrison, got a hold of the script and funded the movie. Yeah. George Harrison's production company is why this was made. Um, so it's, it is an odd little film. Uh, and, and it's one of those, you know, you talk about the economy changing how art is produced. I think a film like this would be a lot harder to make nowadays. Oh, for sure. I think this, you could only make something like this maybe through like Kickstarter or something like that. There's no way, uh, again, because of the economies of scale that we've talked about on the show, most films are either under a million dollars or over what? $20 million. The middle range there, most people, most producers don't want to fuck around with because there's a lot more risk of, of getting their return back. Yeah, and and the audiences aren't built in. The art house audience isn't built in anymore to these movies. But then there's also just the fact that um, money is different than it used to be. Like Robinson talks about this when he says they went back to the place, you know, to film this. He said, if you wanted to live in a house, if you wanted to buy a house on the street I used to live on, it would cost a million dollars. And... uh or a million pounds, excuse me. And when I lived there, the building I lived in cost about 8,000 pounds. Yeah, yeah. We just uh, experienced this the other day. We were, uh, the our next door neighbors moved out of their house and we were kind of curious, like, oh, are they selling it? What, what, What's that house worth? And uh, my wife looked it up. The last time that house was on the market, 
it sold for sixteen thousand dollars. Holy in shit! In the early nineties, yeah. yeah. And I would, wow. I would guess because there was no guesstimate for what for what it's worth now, but I, I would guess it's easily worth half a million now. I, I, I have to withdraw from this conversation to be able to continue the recording. <laughs> okay. So here's the big thing about with nail and I, in terms of, um, Bruce Robinson's life, he had a person that he was able to build with nail out of mm-hmm. Vivian McCarroll. Is that how you'd say it? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, but that that's as close as I think we're going to get. He was apparently an actor that was, uh, the roommate that with nail was based on. Yeah. And so the I is sort of the place that Bruce Robinson was in. Uh, Robinson said, I didn't sit there with a tape recorder and a notepad writing down what Viv said. I just took his acidity, his pompous cowardice, that right there, pompous cowardice. That's, I think, you know, uh, what was Eddie Izzard or Izzard? He talked about how um, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy are extraordinary characters in literature because they are cowards. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing that cuts that cowardice. They are simply these universal, excitable cowards. And the only character that he connects that, you know, that to is like Falstaff was a coward Mm -hmm. and yet had a melancholy instead of just this kind of extraordinary, full energy cowardice. And when I yeah. first heard that, I thought, whatever, man, that's just, you're just being a lunatic. But now I realize that there is, I mean, now at this point in my life, the embodiment of something that we have, you know, in a kind of unfettered way can be very um, validating or empowering. Yeah. And that seems to be what the case is with, with this character. More so than the I character. I think with yeah. Nail is, is what most people relate to, which is ironic because I think uh, the Paul McGann character is is supposed to be the, the, the point of identification. Right. Okay, now I bombed out of that quote, so let me go back. Um, Robinson says, I took Vivian McCarroll's uh, acidity, pompous cowardice, and his very pungent sense of humor, and I wrote the character with Nail. The I character is someone who's always constantly saving the day, which I did a lot with Vivian. So this there's a little bit more about the genesis of the with nail character. Uh, these things are about the actor, McCarroll, that he was based on. And uh, a friend who, of both of them says this. He says, well, Vivian definitely had his opinions I never witnessed him being as nasty as Richard E. Grant is as the character, but with Nail and I had loads of Vivian in it, but they were an extreme version of him. He wasn't a character. There's artistic license in the film. One thing that Bruce warned me about was that I couldn't claim that anything said in the film was ever uttered by Vivian or else he'd issue a writ. (laughs) He's adamant that Viv didn't actually say these things, although he stated in a revised screenplay of the film that although there isn't a line of vivs and with nail, his horrible, quote, wine-stained tongue may as well have spoken every word. So Robinson actually had a moment where he had to tell his friends, don't in any way suggest that you see Vivian and remember him saying shit like that, or we'll, be, we'll all be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and so the name with nail seems odd right and and uh i had no idea what this movie was about when all of you were recommending it to me so i was just like wow that's a really curious name for a film i, I wonder what that's about i don't want to look it up i want to go in cold right. to just get it apparently it's because uh he he spelled the guy's name wrong so he he wanted him to be uh based on somebody whose name was withnall his last name and he spelled it with an i with nail and then just kept it and here's a bit about jonathan withnall that's why he's part of this uh robinson says he backed his aston martin into a police car and he was like the coolest guy i'd ever met in my life so consequently the name stayed in my head so vivian mccarroll is the the crazed alcoholic um uh horribly charismatic roommate mm, mm-hmm. and jonathan withnell is the coolest guy robinson ever met in his life and he's kind of putting these characters like these these literal characters into this person yeah, and he says this about the the withnall guy as well. He was an upper class ne'er do well. He was a total alcoholic. He tells the story again about the Aston Martin, uh, and his reaction at that age was like, "Wow, this guy's extraordinary." <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same way that you were about Bill Murray. Like, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, despite the fact that Robinson can look back and say, uh, you know, the relationship between the characters with Nail and I is permeated with decay you know one character has hope i but the other hope the other bastard has no hope there's none there's nowhere to go he hasn't got anyone to play off he's going to spend his life drinking himself to death Mm. which is is exactly what vivian did yeah the the man who is the sort of core of with of with nail the character died in 1990 from throat cancer because he was, I guess, you know, an alcoholic who damaged basically all the tissues, you know, by drinking and then vomiting. Mm. Um, they'd sewn up his throat. He couldn't swallow. He had this uh, some kind of colostomy style pipe in him. He would drink by pouring liquor directly into his body using the medical devices that were meant to, you know, mm-hmm. save him. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the guy was a, from what Robinson says... This guy was a horribly tragic person. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, exactly. I think Robinson's point is that this person isn't supposed to be admired, especially when you the way the movie ends. He's not to be admired, except and I'm not saying, oh, no, he is supposed to be admired. I'm just saying, except when you put an actor like Richard E. Grant. Yeah. Who we now know is intensely charismatic and Mm -hmm. like very funny and smart. Mm hmm. And give him well-written, you know, rehearsable versions of this person. Yeah. You get more of a... I think someone compares him to Loki somewhere in this in the notes. Uh, or, ironically, or I, I think Richard E. Grant is going to be in the Loki TV show. I saw that in his new credits. So, yes. Okay. You know, but like <laughs> like a, a trickster god uh-huh. or a, a, um, a supernatural entity that is meant to uh, scatter life. So that you then somehow become a different person. Like with nail is uh, Vivian McCarroll in some way uh, ennobled. Yeah. Because yeah. of the performance. Um, so getting back to the production, 
so Dennis O'Brien is was George Harrison's, I guess, co business partner in this production company, and as I mentioned, they'd worked on films with the Monty Python crew. And uh, when this film was being shot, he almost shut the entire operation down because he was under the impression from working with Monty Python that all comedy had to be brightly lit. And this <laughs> film was I, not. I think that's uh, less of a literal thing and more of a sort of like comedy should be brightly lit both on the set and in the story. Mm hmm. Um. And so there's just like a lot of uh, quotes here from people working on the film about their interactions with this producer. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a conversation uh, with the actor who played Uncle Monty, who I only know from the Harry Potter movies, uh, which so it was extremely odd seeing him in this role here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, to, to me, it was the opposite. Like, oh, yeah. not just because of Withnail and I, but because yeah. Richard Griffith is amazing. And I've seen him yeah. in so many movies. When he ended up in Harry Potter, I had a moment of, really? Yeah. Is that yeah, yeah, what's yeah. happening now? Well, it's it's sort of the same thing with the, uh, oh, God, I can't remember her name either. The actress who plays his wife in Harry Potter, who is on Killing Eve now. And there's this, like, weird cognitive dissonance where you're like, wow, that's amazing. Oh, oh, the um, the the sort of MI6 leader, mm -hmm. Fiona Shaw. Yeah, Fiona Shaw. Yeah. That's her name. Okay. Yeah, she was also on a, a season of Candle Cove that I watched recently. So Griffith said that this producer suggested that it should be like, and I don't know who this person is, Kenneth Williams, but the description is arms flailing, that it should be a slapsticky fat cartoon character. They wanted Uncle him to Mon be a homosexual caricature. Yeah. Uncle Monty in the story is is a closeted gay uncle of Withnail. And is he, he closeted? Well, um covert, I guess. Okay. You know, like you I don't think you could be nearly as openly gay in the late 60s as you can now. Yeah, especially if you're like an aristocrat. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's basically a fuck pad. <laughs> that he uh, loans to the this guys. cottage, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Robinson said, they, the producers, thought an effeminate homosexual was amusing, and I didn't. So there was a walk around this hillside, and I said to them, I'll get on the bus now and go home. I really do know what this film is, and it will be funny. Either I'll walk off now, or you're going to have to trust me and shut up. So this was some kind of, like... <sighs> bravado mm. right that he was gonna you know I, I don't think did had he made anything before this i think he had been an actor before been this an actor, and yeah he, but he had won an award for writing the killing fields he hadn't directed i don't believe got it so he is basically telling the folks who found the script amusing i'm not gonna do this the way you found it funny in your head we're gonna do it in a very different way the actor who plays i Bruce, uh, not Bruce, Paul McGann said, we thought we were being hysterical when we rehearsed it. It was going great. And then some suddenly someone tells us we're about as funny as an orphanage on fire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Richard E. Grant was apparently really nervous about this. He thought the film was going to get shut down. He, this was the first movie he'd ever made. And he had told everybody, oh, I'm in this movie. And then he's like, no, it's never going to happen. Right. Um, so we should take from this the sort of summation of uh, even though the script got the production company to fund it, yeah, they didn't recognize the way that Robinson wanted to make it funny. 
Well, let's remember, it got George Harrison to fund it. The guy who was causing all the problems was George Harrison's business partner. Sure, sure. So it's possible that George Harrison was just like, make this movie, and his business partner was like, eh, I don't know. I'm going to okay. oversee everything. Well, let me condense that then a little bit. Robinson didn't have a shorthand to explain to them, it's going to be funny this way. Yeah. They were trying to tell him, make it like other things that are funny. And he's saying, no, no, I want to do it the way I want to do it. Trust me, it'll be funny. He didn't have anything to sort of back uh, to back him up. He couldn't rely on this movie or this movie. This is how it'll yeah. be funny. Yeah. So then we get to the point where Robinson starts talking about it in retrospect and that it's become kind of an albatross for him. Uh, he says this, I have great affection for this film, but it's a sea anchor to me in a sense that it was all anyone ever wanted to talk to me about. It's 14 fucking years ago. It's longer than that now since this interview is from then. And he says, it's like the only thing that I ever wrote. He says, every day he gets accosted by cranks in long leather coats, quoting chunks of his own dialogue back at him. I'm sure it's not every day. It probably just feels that way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He says, what's weird is they kind of discover it 10 years on. So all the with nails now are all like 18 to 25 years old. Again, this was earlier. Uh, He says, these people come up to me and they say, yeah, we like to have curry and watch with nail and I at university. And I think about how that happens. And I think, oh yeah, my fan base, they're all 18 or 19 year old boys. With nail and I is not a movie that uh, was of its moment and retains its joy for people as they grow older. It retains its joy for a particular age. Yeah, and I think that's why I had somewhat of a lukewarm reaction to it, right? Here I am at 42 watching it for the first time. It is a good movie. It's well made and it's interesting, but it didn't like really get its uh, daggers in me the way it probably would have if I was younger. Yeah. And uh, Robinson even suggests that uh, his career didn't really go the way he wanted it to. He says after he made with nail uh, for five minutes, the sun shone out of his ass and everything went downhill. His Hollywood experiences, uh, he says, which were great. I don't knock them, but you know, Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot to be said about those movies we listed earlier. You know, you said like one of them was almost a great movie. I think it was because he was really struggling with the system. Yeah. Um, at the core of sort of Robinson's artistic intentions versus what can sell, he wrote the novel and killed Withnail at the end. Mm-hmm. Withnail commits suicide in a very sort of um, elaborate way, drinks a bottle of wine through the barrel of a gun and then shoots himself in the head. Maybe and, that's uh, how the film should have ended, because if it had ended that way, I think it would have been a lot more obvious to people that he wasn't supposed to be a sympathetic character. I don't know. Would it have done the work though? I mean, I think it would have just disappeared if it had ended like that. It's, it's like a character at the end of a long television, a long running television show dying. And Mm. then no one wants to go back and start the show again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he says this when, when the character is left alone at the end of the film, he's alone. He knows he's fucked. That's a quite a turn. And that's the way it was with Vivian. He was a complete total fucking disaster in the life that he had. Yeah, we worked hard on the ending, he says. They, uh, him and Richard E. Grant created this, um, this scene of a, uh, a Hamlet monologue delivered to uh, wolves at the zoo. Yeah, 
Yeah. Which is, you know, full of meaning. Very actorly. So speaking Can we take a moment to yeah. talk about this fatty Grant thing? <laughs> well, it's it's in the notes. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about it. So Bruce Robinson, and the reason I'm noticing it now is that the rest of that quote, uh, we worked hard on the ending, the buildup to when Fatty Grant pulled off, did he not? That Shakespeare at the end, it still blows me away. He just had the right rage. Bruce Robinson says that Richard E. Grant was too fat for the role, and he told him, lose the weight and you can do it. Uh-huh. He says, no one believes me, but I have the pictures. Grant was fat. I went looking for pictures of Richard E. Grant in his career previous to this movie. And I found a promo photo from a television show or a television movie he had done the year before. Okay. And unless Richard E. Grant had like a sudden, sudden ballooning, (laughs) Bruce Robinson is pulling a very complicated, long running inside joke for himself. Oh, I think it's a total prank. Yeah, it's a gag. That's why he keeps referencing it. Yeah. And so the reason I bring it up is to say Robinson has this streak of just for me bullshit. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Like he will not let go of the idea of saying Richard E. Grant was fat, but he lost the weight for with nail. Yeah. Yeah. Which he did fucking not. (laughs) Well, maybe he lost some weight. He's certainly skinny. Oh, I'm sure he thinned out. Yeah. He wasn't fat before. No, no. So that brings us to, t- to talking about Richard E. Grant. Uh, he is a swazi English actor. He is no. He's been in everything. This guy is like the like in the dictionary next to character actor. It's his face. Hey man, don't back away from Hudson Hawk. No, I'm gonna list these. These are the ones okay. that he's mainly known for. Hudson's Hawk. Hudson's Hawk. Hudson Hawk. I love it. <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula. Spice World, which was the first thing I thought of when I was watching this. Uh, <laughs> Gosford Park. <laughs> Logan, I forgot he's the bad guy in Logan. Uh, and he's most recently, he was in The Rise of Skywalker. He's one of the Imperial bad guys in that, which is hey, perfect. Spoiler alert, dude. Oh, sorry. I know you're in a rush to watch it. <laughs> I adore Richard E. Grant. Yeah, he's great. He is amazing in everything he does. He is one of those people that if he just pops into a movie, you're like, oh, well, this will be cool for five minutes, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, little bit of nerd trivia I'm going to throw out here. I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking this. Uh, Charlie, you're totally unaware of this. Both Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann have ties to the Doctor Who franchise. Paul McGann oh. was one of the Doctors. I knew about McGann, yeah. I and uh, Richard E. Grant. Grant, in the last couple of years, he played like a big villain on Doctor Who. Oh, well, shit. Sounds like we're going to watch some Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to hold up with it, but okay. <laughs> At least one episode. At least one, the first episode of the Richard E. Grant I'll have to watch. He's only in Here, one episode. Here's how good Richard E. Grant is. When he was a young, struggling actor, he was the second choice to Daniel Day-Lewis, Bill Nighy, and Kenneth Branagh for um, Robinson's with nail. Yeah, so Robinson gives these reasons why he didn't hire all those folks. He says Daniel Day-Lewis... Uh, didn't turn it down as much as that time passed and then he wasn't available. Bill Nighy uh, w- was very good in the auditions, but he was drinking. And he said, I thought one drunk on the set was going to be enough. I and guess Robinson is the drunk that he's yeah, referring to. He means himself. Uh, Kenneth Branagh was an excellent actor and he could have played with nail, but he would have been, quote, a podgy with nail. And there's more on that here. He says, I offered 
Paul's part, the the I part to Kenneth Branagh, and he turned me down. He wanted to play with Nail. I didn't want him to do that. I didn't think he had enough nobility. He's a marvelous actor, but there's something about him that is the antithesis of Byronesque. He looks like a partially cooked donut. Richard looks like a Byron, you know. Oh, come on. Richard looks like a fucking Byron, you know. That's what he said. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then in retrospect, Grant says, thanks. Thank goodness. Thank God. Daniel Day-Lewis turned down the role. That's all I can say. When I worked with him on the film Age of Innocence, I prostrated myself in his Winnebago and I said, oh, Daniel, I owe you everything that's happened to me. And it's true. (laughs) Okay. So Bruce Robinson says. He swears that he was never fat, but I've got the pictures. When Richard E. Grant came along, I said, half of you has got to go. He lost all this weight, and he's never put it on again. Richard's a vicious old tart, and he obviously had the wherewithal to play with nail. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it like he did. So there's I, been interviews. With, I call bullshit on he, Robinson well, all what, the way. Here's what I think it is. I think Richard E. Grant was a normal-sized man, and with nail was supposed to be emaciated. And so the joke has become Fatty Grant because yeah. he wasn't emaciated. Because you were you were a regular person, and then you had to like, oh god, he looks so unhealthy. He looks like a knife, right? Yeah. That's been used to cut something terrible. So Grant's been interviewed many times over the years about this. Like Robinson, it's all a lot of people talk to him about, uh, which is interesting. I would have thought it was Spice World, but you know, everybody to each their own. He Who's says, your favorite Spice Girl? Oh, uh, scary. Thank you. <laughs> you may now continue. Uh, he says, "Who's yours?" I guess it's Ginger. Yeah, Ginger's cool. I almost went with Ginger, but Scary's cr- just crazy enough that I like her. No, I'm more. totally. I, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> um. So, uh, Grant says. Look, I knew it bone deep when I read the script that this was going to be a role for the ages. It made me laugh out loud. It was brilliantly written. The stage directions were hilarious. I'd been unemployed for nine months. So that was the best preparation I could have had for playing an embittered, unemployed actor. Grant says, I've spent my life playing alcoholics because my withnail performance was so um, convincing. Yeah. And he's not a drinker. Because he can't. He physically can't handle it. When he drank for the rehearsals for With Nail or some kind of like, you know, hey, let's do some um, research, some actorly research for what it's like, you know, if you're really, really fucking drunk. He says uh, it took him an entire night to get down a bottle of champagne. The director asked me to, but I paid the price. I was very, very ill. I'd have a drink and be violently sick, but I kept forcing it down. So by the next morning I was drunk and then I passed out. I woke up 24 hours later. That's actually probably what with nails actual life would be like. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a great irony and I think people have a lot of fun with that. There's a lot of trivia about like what he was or was not drinking in various scenes in the film where he's pounding, uh, wine. Uh, Grant also mentions that he gets brought it gets brought up with fans all the time. He says people will not let me forget about it when I work in the states or I'm going through an airport 
or I've been in godforsaken places where I wouldn't have expected anybody to have ever even found this movie. There's always one person who has that look in their eye and will come over and say they know about the movie as though they're the only person on the planet that knew about it. Now that is, I feel the cult movie thing that we should be really thinking about. Yeah. It's the, it's the attachment, the identity attachment thing. The like, this is my movie. As though they're the only person on the planet that knew about it. That that feels really good to me as the as as the as way that the a cult definition of a cult film. Of it. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting though. Like Google cult film right now and all the stuff that comes up are like what I would think of as major mainstream movies. Yeah, and this is where the, then you get into sort of the topics. Mm-hmm. You know, a cult film becomes something that's about what shouldn't be mainstream but is mainstream. Anyway, I, I, I don't think that there's a a good... If anyone knows, any listener knows the book or the article that that really lays it out, that we should use as our go-to for what a cult film is, I'd love to hear about it. Supercontextpodcast at gmail.com or patreon.com slash supercontext. Let's do a quick aside. Here's If you just Google cult classics, on this, these are the results that come up. Okay, I'm strapped in. The Room... Rocky Horror Picture Show, Repo the Genetic Opera, Donnie Darko, Repo Man, Blade Runner? Yeah, see, this is where it starts. It goes completely off the rails when you get to stuff like that. The Big Lebowski, Harold and Maude, Birdemic, Pink Flamingos, Fight Club. That's, again, mm, like I think Fight off. Club's a huge mainstream movie. It's not Head- a huge mainstream movie, but yes. Hedwig and the An- Angry Inch. Buckaroo Banzai, With Nail and I, Reefer Madness, Napoleon Dynamite. Again, I don't think that makes sense. Uh, Evil Dead, Eraserhead, The Warriors, Office Space, Pulp Fiction, This is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride. I'm going to stop here. Plan 9 from Outer Space. See, there's not a... there's, There's like... There's not a thread that can connect all of those. That's like a cluster of kinds of cult films, you know, mm-hmm. mixed in with each other. Let us move on. Yeah. And maybe maybe we'll have an answer at the end. Maybe not. So Paul McGann is the eighth doctor. That's what you know him from, right? Is he 89? What does that is, mean? In Alien 3? Yeah. Or is he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that. Alien 3 was meant to be an homage to this film. <laughs> Speaking of David Fincher. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love him in Alien 3. He's great in Alien 3. Uh, he's okay as Doctor Who. Uh, he, <laughs> he's only... I know you don't really give a shit about this. He was only in one TV movie, and it was kind of ludicrous. Uh, and then he like he came back retroactively and like did stuff. Uh, he, Chris, he was on Luther. Did you ever watch Luther? You You know that, right? What's that? I love you. You know that. You do. How much do you love Doctor Who, though? I love you. (laughs) Did you get around to watching Luther? Yeah, I didn't like it. He's on it. He's pretty good in that. I Um, like Idris Elba. I just, Luther, the very first episode of Luther starts with, like, a lot of screaming and running and all that. It's great. it's like, oh, I'm not I'm not down for this right now. And I haven't you, been back. You prefer your crime dramas to be quiet and 
slow walks. It has to start with a guy with a gun to his own head. That's how I need my <laughs> crime to start. Okay. Uh, he was apparently also known for something called the monocled mutineer. I've never I don't think, heard of that. I don't think you can say that someone's known for something that you don't know what it is. You know, <laughs> I feel like that's that's kind of not all right. So here's how the story goes about him and with Nail and I. Paul McGann was hired for the film and then fired twice. First, he wouldn't lose his Scouse accent. Uh, Robinson kept saying to him, you've got to dump the accent, Paul. You're meant to be a lower middle class boy who's gone to drama school and you cannot speak like that. (laughs) And so I got rid of him and then I reinstated him because he promised me he'd get rid of the accent, which he did. You can see here, Robinson had had very particular ideas about how these characters should be portrayed. It makes me think of Almost Famous. If you've ever read Cameron Crowe's discussion of Almost Famous, there's things that were that were exactly what happened to him in his life that he fictionalized. Mm-hmm. But all of the details had to be the same. Mm. And so he would make people do takes over and over again to get it just like he remembered. Or he would say, this is exactly the place it has to happen or exactly the way. And uh, it made a few people crazy on set. Yeah, I, Robinson I can imagine. Was experiencing the same, yeah, Robinson was experiencing the same thing. It, you know, it's got to be this way. Although I think probably the class of each of these characters was more important than just like the tone of someone's voice or the hat they were wearing. Oh, I think that makes sense. The class thing is important to the like uh, voice and theme of this, which is, you know, a critique of British society. I want to read something um, that McGann talks about, which uh, I, I never thought about. It never connected with me, but reading it, it's like, oh, yeah, everything he just said is true. So this is from an article. Uh, the movie takes place in 1969. The low budget quality leads viewers to think it was filmed at the same time because like the film quality is degraded. enough. kind of looks like it was in the 60s. Yeah. Paul McGann says it comes from the mid 1980s, but it sticks out like a Smith's record. the provenance is from a different era. None of the production values, none of the iconography, none of the style remotely has it down as an eighties picture. I've had people say to me, geez, I thought it was from the sixties. I don't know how old they think I am. (laughs) Right. Yeah. He would be significantly older if he had shot that movie in the late sixties. Well, you know, maybe they just think he looks really good or maybe he looks so shitty that he's exactly what they would expect someone to look like. Um, real quick before we move on from the actors, we've mentioned Richard Griffiths. He plays Uncle Monty, but I really think the all-star player in this film is Ralph Brown, who plays Danny, the drug dealer. Presuming Ed. He's he's quite good. Uh, and another like nerdy bit of trivia is apparently Wayne's World 2 of all movies is another homage to With Nail and I, and he is supposed to be playing a version of Danny uh, in nice. Wayne's World 2. Isn't presuming Ed also in Alien Three? He is. He, yeah, that's part of the that's homage. Part of the, Let's yeah. just skip ahead to the Alien Three thing since we've mentioned it twice now. Hold Sorry, on. it's just stuck in my head. And uh, I, McGann is an actor who I know, I know, but I never recognize him. Oh, really? Yeah, I, yeah. I think just maybe because of Doctor Who, I'm always like, oh, it's the Eighth Doctor. Right. Um, in 1992, when Fincher, David Fincher, was making Alien Three, he wanted to do an unofficial reunion of the film. And so uh, McGann and Brown are both in alien three. If you remember that film is set on like a prison planet, they're prisoners. Richard E. Grant turned down the role. He was supposed to play the Charles dance character on alien three, 
which would have been interesting because that means Richard E. Grant would have had a sex scene with Sigourney Weaver. Why is that interesting? I just can't imagine that. Yeah. And Charles Dance. Charles is Dance. Amazing. <laughs> That's anytime his name is said, you have to say it. As if it's David Bowie's Let's Dance. Well, that's going to happen from now on, for sure. He is a national treasure, Charles Dance. Uh, yeah, but the wrong nation. Okay, let's talk about George Harrison. Okay. He's a fucking beetle. Uh-huh. What, else, what else can we say? I mean, he's, big, he's a big deal. Uh, here's the thing that I was unaware of, though. Apparently, uh, the Beatles have strict regulations about what films their music shows up in. And the only reason this film was able to have a Beatles song on the soundtrack was because Harrison was one of the producers. Yeah. So handmade films is the production company. It's British, uh, or was, did it, I think it's disappeared by now. Hasn't it? Uh, yeah. So there's some interesting stuff here. It's actually owned by somebody else now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it started off as this production company. They, they made this and they made, Terry Gilliam movies. They made uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian and Time Bandits. Ah, Chris, you're confusing your Terry's. Life of Brian was Terry Jones. Time Bandits was Terry Gilliam. Ah, uh, okay. And you know what's funny? I just did a quick Life of Brian Google search. Uh, it's playing nearby at 7 p.m. tonight. How is that even possible with the coronavirus going on? Well, I, I don't know that any, anybody will be in the theater, but it is scheduled <laughs> to play. <laughs> but the point is... Life of Brian is on some, you know, theater's marquee right now. I I have to admit to something that is going to upset you. I'm totally fine with whatever you say about Monty Python. I'm I'm not a huge Monty Python fan. I like it kind of okay, but it just never got me at the right moment. I like Terry Gilliam's work after Monty Python a lot more. Yeah. The thing about Life of Brian that we should talk about in terms of with nail and eye the constant quoting, the sort of quote a bull fucking yes dialogue, right? Uh-huh. And I, I was, I cannot even remotely disparage anyone who does this because I did it for twenty years. But quoting movies is uh, what some of us use as a personality for a little while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, it's something that uh, if you ask my wife, she knows it as a bee in my bonnet. I. <laughs> I get really annoyed when people just quote things at me, uh, specifically the Simpsons. I fucking hate it right. when somebody's just like, hey, remember that time in the Simpsons when they said such and such? But you understand the drive because um, what did he say to you? Go on, bear, get. Yeah. And a couple other things, you know, that like the, those are things the, that actually happened in my life, though. Totally, totally. But seeing a movie also happened in these people's lives. Yeah. The the idea of sort of replaying um, a a moment or sort of adding a past memory to a current mm-hmm. moment is mm-hmm. a powerful thing. It's just yeah, really I, I, I get it. And irritating when it's always movie quotes from stuff that maybe people just don't like. Well, I don't think it has to do necessarily with whether I like it or not. I think for me, it's I get frustrated when people aren't able to. Uh, talk openly and honestly about who they are and they use the quotes instead of, you know, actual direct language to talk about what they believe in or who they are, or what they enjoy. Well, I mean, that's just like your opinion, man. Okay. So back to George Harrison's company, 
this, unfortunately, those films, they sound like they were big successes because they're cult films now, but uh, they were apparently box office bombs. So by the late 80s, they had a ton of debt and it was blamed on O'Brien. This guy, Dennis O'Brien, does not come off well in the research. Nobody seems to like him. Uh, he So the company ceased operations in 1991. It was sold to Paragon Entertainment. And then George Harrison sued O'Brien for $25 million. And he for said... Fraud. Fraud and, and negligence. negligence. Yeah. Yeah. Because he thought that comedy should be well lit. $25 million. <laughs> uh, uh, Harrison got $11.6 million in a judgment. Uh, this company is now owned by Paragon. Paragon went on to make films under this company's uh, title, uh, such as Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. And the film was distributed by Cineplex Odeon Films, which is uh, a Canadian film distribution unit, I guess. And it's funny to me, like, I don't know this, but the idea of a handmade films production distributed by Cineplex Odeon feels very, like, comforting and nostalgic to me. I'm sure if you went and you looked at the... uh the filmographies you'd realize like oh i've probably seen those logos a yeah. dozen times back when there was a lot more like seeing it on the dvd case and then playing the movie and like enjoying slipping into the production logos that yeah. pop up because oh we're gonna watch that movie again it's all very like a thing that doesn't happen for me anymore yeah yeah i you know it does happen for me with one company right now a24 anytime i see the a24 logo i'm like oh the chances that this is going to be good just went up exponentially exponentially nice okay um hey i think uh i think it's time to take a break i feel i feel a powerful quoting um uh desire coming on and i think i just should go say it to my kids so that you don't get irritated yeah go talk to your kids about how much wine you drink so, Chris, I started this recording um, by quoting with Nail and I, or, or right before we began, and you were like, oh, Jesus, uh, <laughs> how dare you? So I'm not going to do it again, although there's a number of quotes about consumerism and getting money and what we expect from people and what we give to people from with Nail and I that would be quite useful. But only useful in the sense of starting a Patreon campaign ad. <laughs> but you shut you shut it down. You shut it down so hard. So why don't you do it, dude? Well, I would say that super contexts are like hippie wigs and that they allow you to purchase into a culture that you may not have actually participated in. Okay. We have a Patreon campaign, but it is becoming less and less important for us to ask you to join. At this point, we have one month of regular super context production. During that time... Our Patreon is active. Our supporters are getting things like uh, bloopers and uh, outtakes, bi-weekly bonus mini-episodes, access to a monthly Super King Context episode, all great rewards that we've heard a lot of nice things about. Thank you. Uh, and we're using the money from Patreon to pay hosting fees, cover the expenses of media artifacts, and keep the recording setup going. Any minute now, though, we're going to shift into an archival uh, Patreon campaign. And Chris, can you explain that to them? Yeah. So what will happen is in May of 2020, we're going to cease production of regular Super Context episodes. 
all we will be producing is for the Patreon. Anybody at that time who gives $1 a month will have access to all of the extra content that's been produced in the last year and a half, as well as all of the episodes, and Charlie and I will continue to record a mini-sode every month. So that's really just to keep the archive of Super Context up and available. We want it yeah. to be free and we want it to be active because, again, people have said really nice things about this show. They've really validated this project and what we've done, and we would love for it to be available to more people for a long time. Yeah, and if you want to join here in this last month, you're more than welcome to do that. We have a couple things that are coming up that you might find interesting. We're going to do an episode about the novel Hyperion, which was one of our Patreon re rewards for our co-producer uh, at the end of last year. We're also going to do an episode about Kate Bush's The Hounds of Love. And we have a Super King Context episode coming out at the end of March about Stand By Me. Yes. And once again, Chris, are you ready for the pie eating scene or have you still forgotten it? I'm ready. <laughs> Our patrons have done amazing things for this show. It's been fantastic and we love them all and we thank them in each episode. And we're going to do that right now. Thank you so much. Alex Laird, Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bongman, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chovnich, Caroline Zoids, Chris Marlton, Cliff Landis, Coco, Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, and Elijah Tilstra. Thank you also to Evan Mapstone, Fred Rasco, Ira James Udiskin, James McDonnell, Jason Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, Juan Patton, Hunta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirvola, Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, and Luciano Fuck. Thank you to Luigi Oswego, Melinda Hale, Miriam Mini, Misha Moon, Nathan Weatherford, Nick Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bowe, Philip, R.M. Rhodes, Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, a podcast. Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, and Robert Negoesco. Thank you also to Roman Marichek, Romantic Placebo, Ron Bilodeau, Ross Llewellyn, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Tara Meshack, Thomas Tremberger, Veal Height, and Whitney Buchanan. Thank you, everyone. It's been really wonderful to have you as part of this community. And uh, we hope you'll stick with us for at least a little while after we bring this all to a close at patreon.com slash super context. And we're back. So we are not the only ones who are asking the question, why is with nail and I one of Britain's biggest cult films? It's something that people want to know. Yeah. There's a lot written about it. A lot of listicles involve this film. Uh, so here's what we got here. Uh, this became a word of mouth classic because of video shops in the nineties. 87 was a perfect time for something to become a video store classic. But listen to these lists. And some of these are bizarre, <laughs> but I put them all in here. The British film Institute voted this the 29th greatest British film of all time. 
Time Out Magazine ranked it the 15th best British film ever. <laughs> Total Film voted it the third greatest comedy of all time and the 13th greatest British film of all time. 13th greatest British film, but third greatest comedy. Okay. <laughs> the Observer had a 2009 poll where they interviewed 60 prominent British filmmakers and critics and they all voted at the second best British film in 25 years that has so many qualifications attached to it uh, Empire Magazine says it's the 118th best film of all time the uh, here, here's the financial numbers the this film made 565 112 pounds and a U.S. gross of $1,544,889. Its budget was 1.1 million pounds. So that sounds roughly, you know, given our like our marketing uh, factor, it's, it's probably about breaking even. I feel, you know, okay, I feel like it lost money, but I'm okay. I, I wouldn't fight that. Uh, Bruce Robinson said he got one pound for the screenplay. And eighty thousand pounds to to direct it, thirty thousand of those pounds he put back into the movie by because himself. Handmade films wouldn't fund it. Jesus, it sounds like Handmade Films was a mess. I want to know the story about this this one producer. There's got to be nasty, nasty tales about him out of school. Well, think about the the business he was in. You know that he has appeared as a character without that name in movie after movie Probably. when people were trying to like. Oh God! This is going to be my. I'm going to take uh, O'Brien. Is it Dennis O'Brien? I think it's Dennis O'Brien. Yeah. Oh, is it Brian O'Dennis? Anyway, there's probably a Brian O'Dennis in some movie, and you know that'll be our exact uh, uh, replica of this dude. So here's how the the criticism goes of it. People love it. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 94 percent based on 33 professional reviews. The audiences give it one percent more at 94. And that's 43,091 users. The Ooh. rare occasion where the Rotten Tomatoes critics and audience scores match. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked about Alien 3 already. That was one homage within the uh, entertainment industry. Here's a couple others. I'm going to just gloss over these because I don't want to go too deep into this. Johnny Depp really liked it. That's why he made The Rum Diary with Robinson. Uh, Will Arnett is apparently a big fan. And uh, he's worked it into something. Oh, some Netflix show he was on called Flaked. Never heard of that before. Apparently, Vin Diesel is a big fan and has been spotted quoting Danny the Drug Dealer on British television. Okay. And here's a quick thing. Johnny Depp, born 1963. Will Arnett, born 1970. Vin Diesel, born 1967. The movie came out in 1987. So these guys are all Vin the Diesel early was born 20s. in 1967. He's 10 years older than me. That's insane. I, I think I do want to go down this path. Explain. <laughs> explain why that's insane. No, I want to hear it. Tell me, me everything. He is like one of the biggest action stars in the world, and he's over 50. Although when you think about most action stars nowadays, they are over 50. Tom yes, Cruise. Or they're 22. Johnny Depp. Yeah. Is Johnny Depp an action star anymore? He, well, I don't know. I guess the pirate movies, do those count? 
okay, I'm done. Let's go back. All right. <laughs> here is where we get into some real cult stuff. So, okay, not only does it get um, sort of reprocessed by the industry, mm. right? David Fincher, Johnny Depp, Will Arnett, Vin Diesel. The, these are uh, <laughs> white male paragons of Hollywood. And yet, oh, I just realized, of course, Vin Diesel is not a paragon of white Hollywood. He's, um, God, I don't even know what his background is. I don't either. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Okay, so setting aside Vin Diesel, um, maybe setting aside the joke, white Hollywood, male Hollywood, male uh, Gen X Hollywood really digs with nail and eye. Yeah. And then let's slide a little farther into the cult classic stuff. Uh, there is a drinking game associated with the movie, which is not a drinking game. It's a challenge. It's an attack. It's an attempt to destroy yourself. You're supposed to match with nail drink for drink, hmm. which you okay. cannot do. You will die. Uh, yeah. So the game says you need either gin, cider, ale, sherry, whiskey, or red wine, or you can substitute those things with lighter fluid or vinegar. Oh, Chris, you're completely misreading that. To match him drink for drink, you require gin, cider, oh. ale, sherry, whiskey, red wine, and then some kind of astringent lighter fluid or vinegar because he does drink lighter fluid as the character and yep. Grant drank vinegar. Okay. Don't do it. Just don't fucking do it at all. Uh, also, there yeah. is this event, Uncle Monty's Summer Soiree, oh which has been going on for, I think, nine or ten years. Uh this is a quote from uh, a website, uh, an outdoor screening of the cult movie, which starred Richard E. Grant, Paul McGann and Richard Griffiths takes place at Sleddale Hall, overlooking wet Sleddale Reservoir on the eastern edge of the Lake District National Park near Shap. I'm sure I'm pronouncing all of those places <laughs> incorrectly. This year will be the ninth annual screening at the event, Uncle Monte's, uh, Monte's, Uncle Monty's Summer Soiree, named after Griffith's character in the film. They go to a place that was part of the setting. It's a, a Sleddell Hall is I Crow believe that's Crag where the, from, the cottage was. Yeah, from the movie. Um, so they do this outdoor film screening. It is cool. a gathering. It is the... The embodiment of the cult classic thing. A bunch of people come together to celebrate mm -hmm. simultaneously in person an event. So here's the thing, right? Like, I'm kind of dismissive of this. And yet, like, two months ago, I went up to the Timberline Lodge to watch yeah, The totally. Shining. So you should be totally dismissive of it because it's not your thing. But sure. you know that at the core, the drive to do this sort of thing mm -hmm. is a true, real, and, and not admirable but uh respectable kind of human drive yeah it's uh i i can identify with it um one of the things that may be hard for people to identify with this film on though is just how white and male and upper class it is so let's talk a little bit more about representation you kind of tapped into this yeah i think that's what set me up when i was starting to list these actors and directors and trying to call them all white it's that it does seem to kind of dismiss all other experiences yeah and there is also the the straight factor as well um we talked about this already just in the production notes but you know the producer wanted richard griffith's character uncle monty to be even more over the top than he is in the film 
in the film as it stands, there is a certain amount of gay panic that is distasteful, I think. And uh, there's an article that'll be in the notes written by Ashley Naftool. She says, uh, this hasn't aged well. There's gay panic that surrounds Richard Griffith's character, Uncle Monty. When he has impassioned come-ons to Marwood in the countryside, it feels like it's just a few banjo plucks away from going into limey deliverance. Yeah, and really what we're saying is that it becomes a plot point that the I character is scared that Uncle Monty might assault him. Mm -hmm. Um, Stephen Puttacombe wrote about the film, and he says, what's interesting is that all the characters have arrived at their point of self-destruction from privileged backgrounds, especially with Nail. Marwood, Marwood is the I character, if we haven't already made that connection, uh, appears middle class, but Widnail's connections are positively aristocratic. Widnail's privilege doesn't count for anything, and part of the reason why he's sympathetic, or at the very least pitiable, is because he's not an insufferable brat who always gets his own way. He's insufferable, but he's failing throughout the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he's constantly evoking this status that's impotent. Uh, He says all this stuff. He sounds absurd. He's hilarious, but he looks shoddy and he lacks any sincere conviction. And nobody expects that they're actually going to obey his commands. So with nail is a takedown of aristocracy, but he's not aristocratic. He is just uh, performing aristocracy. Well, I guess that de- depends on what your definition of what makes one aristocratic, right? By lineage, he is, and technically yeah, liter- by literally finances, by lineage, he although, is. But, he, but he's not, he doesn't have a position of power. Yeah. He doesn't have a position of respect. If there was ever in his background that power and respect, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Even his Uncle Monty, who is the the rich line of this family, is in some ways a confounded nobleman. Right. In, mm. in the, the modern times that he's in. Um, and this was uh, set in a moment when social structures were collapsing, when those authorities were supposed to be sort of discarded. And it was filmed in a time when people were really seriously feeling like we're done with all that. Yeah. We're, we're going to yeah. we're going to cap it and and hide it. Um. There's a further quote here from Puttacombe about that. He says, perhaps because the film was set in the liberal-minded 60s or that it was made under Thatcher's government, that championed the idea or the myth that a free market-driven meritocracy existed. Withnail and I presents a scenario where being born with a silver spoon is not enough to make it. And this is from present day, Puttacombe is writing. Puttacombe says, in our current climate, where much is made by how acting jobs are more and more becoming the preserve of an elite few, it's interesting to ponder in today's, today's society, would it be Marwood who fails or Withnail for all of his vices who succeeds? So these are out-of-work or struggling actors who should be able to live, you know, in 1967, 1970, whatever, yeah. um, should be able to live on what they make performing in plays and the occasional commercial. Yeah. Whereas now if you said, you know, Oh, they make their living 
from the plays they perform in, it would be like, oh my God, what move, what Marvel movies did they make before they went to Broadway? You know, yeah. like theater for a lot of folks is a hobbyist, um, uh, not profession. It's a avocation. It mm-hmm. is a hobby. It is a thing that you have to support yourself um, in other ways to do. And that wasn't always true. Yeah. Although now we're giving away when we're recording this. Uh, given the severity of economic repercussions that we're looking at because of the coronavirus isolation, I wonder if we're going to go back to a period of time where you even more draconian than what you're talking about, where like it is, it is a hobby. It is not a a living. Well, yeah. Being an artist of any type. There's minor industries that are all going to collapse. Um, I, I can only assume that, the desire for certain things and the wish for returning to normalcy. Yeah. Right. We'll keep it from being like, Oh, you know, this time's over. We've moved on. It'll be more of a gosh, you know, all of these businesses failed. All these theaters went under. Can we start another one? I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah. Time will tell. Um, one thing I just like to bring up before we, we get any further into talking about the themes of this film uh, it might be in the notes later on here, but I believe both Robinson and Grant mention that in their experience, the people who watch this mov- movie the most are are white dudes in their early 20s. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's also like important to consider in terms of like representation and diversity. I wonder how many uh, women are out there who identify as strongly with this film as as some of these guys who are doing this drinking game. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the way that people have understood what with nail and I is presenting, right? Beyond just like, Oh, it's an experience that I want to have. Yeah. More like what is happening in the story? What is happening when we have these sort of forms of representation and this portrait of a uh, decaying alcoholic and a struggling, uh, not alcoholic, you know, trying to make his way. Mm. Ashley uh, Naftul, Naftule writes something that is sort of extraordinary to me because this is something I would never think of. If you've ever been part of a creative community, you've met people like Withnail, fantastically talented human beings who'd probably make an indelible mark on their field if they could get their shit together for a day or two. Now, I don't take that from Withnail at all. Withnail to me is a is a, a train loose on the track headed down. It, I think that maybe has just something to do with the differences in like your and my, and maybe Ashley's uh, personal oh, background. Yeah, yeah, totally. I totally. absolutely recognize this. I know I knew with nails. I knew people who uh, were just human disasters. And if they could get their shit together, they would have been incredibly, incredibly prolific i think well, creators. let me be particular about this do you think that with nail is that person the character do you feel like with nail is someone that if he stopped drinking that he would be a fantastically talented human being i always took with nail to be a person who had detached himself from society mm. you know and was destroying himself because he was detached he was that kind of trickster figure that that sort of element of nature 
not a person who could be productive and yeah. connected. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I think this gets into the like cultural and, and class nature of this film. And I don't feel comfortable speaking to it because I'm, I'm not English. Right. Um, but it does seem to me that from Robinson's perspective with nail is like this because of his class, because he, he expected to have everything handed to him. And when it wasn't, that's when he withdrew and started self-destructing. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's possible to divorce the two, but I do see comparisons to people that I've I, I've met and and frankly like worked with. Well, Naftule um, does separate the, uh, the class from the story because they write. I think of all the brilliant people I know in Phoenix whenever I watch with Nail. Poets, musicians, artists, and actors who could do truly magnificent things if they just eased up on the Hunter S. Thompson lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I.e., that's an American version of whatever is going on in With Nail. There's, I used to have a not... roommate. <clears throat> Sorry. I used to have a roommate okay. who was a, a musician and a writer. And he and I uh, played music together. He uh, one day posted onto our refrigerator... Hunter S. Thompson's daily drug and alcohol consumption oh, schedule as yeah, if it I've were like that. a, uh, you know, some kind of like thing to live up to something to strive for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you handle a hit of cocaine with your orange juice? My understanding is that that guy is no longer writing or producing music. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a, um, it seems like an overly elaborate way of killing yourself to strive for those fictionalized versions of people's drug and alcohol habits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Richard Luck wrote about the film and he goes on to say, (laughs) he says, when you're watching this film, there's a, there's a point where you say, all right, I get it. The world for these characters is in a hell of a state, but so is the one that I live in. Uh, And he says, but when you think about it, it actually isn't, uh, he's not writing from the coronavirus situation, uh, but he says it actually isn't, and neither are with Nail and Marwoods. Like, like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to these guys? They're going to have to go back to mommy and daddy. Well, yeah, and this is also the Lake District, which uh, I learned about when we talked about uh, A Tale of One Bad Rat. Um, Richard Luck says, we're immediately reminded of what a beautiful country ours is. Uh, the film is briefly a celebration of hail fellow well-met Britishness. The writer-director clearly loves Britain and is therefore that much angrier about what uh, was becoming of it in the age of Margaret Thatcher. The film's affection for Britain is at times expressed quite subtly. And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of like references to what was great and what was fun and what was lovely about this moment in time that mm. they're portraying that also seems to be sort of a, this is what could be good if you just like stopped being a Thatcherite um, free market absolutist. <laughs> I, so this is the stuff that escaped me when I was watching it. Right. Uh, it's easier for me to see that kind of cultural affection and critique in something like fear and loathing than it is for me to see it in with nail and I, yeah, because it is subtle. Yeah. Yeah. So all this to say, um, you know, we've been talking about 
like, oh, with Nail is this um, quotable wreck of a human being. And, you know, Richard E. Grant is a charismatic actor. And so this is sort of what the movie feels like. Like, oh, it's a personality that people kind of want to take on. They don't want to be destroyed like with Nail, but they want to have that effect on people. Mm -hmm. And yet the movie appears to be certainly at the core of Robinson's intent to be a, a, a lifeline out of that destroyed place he found himself in, in the late sixties. And because of when it was made also a lifeline out of what, and now I'm talking about stuff I know nothing about except for what my English heroes have told me a lifeline out of Thatcher's destruction of what made post-war England great. Mm, Okay. Um, Well, then, you know, you do have to turn back to this quote, though, also from Richard Luck, who says, hey, let's remember, like, there's some ugly stuff here in this film. And some of it, it seems like Robinson is purposely celebrating. And some of it, maybe Robinson was unaware that he was being ugly. He's, he purposely points out, he says, uh, this film has moments where all of the characters express anti-gay, anti-black, or anti-Irish sentiments. Despite Rob- that clearly not being Robinson's point. Yeah, yeah. So this is, again, like, you you have to divorce yourself from, the, like, the characters and what the characters say versus the intention of the creator. Um, it's kind of like Paper Girls when uh, there's yes. homophobia in Paper Girls. Which has to be there for the story and seems um, yeah. historically correct. And you wouldn't say, oh, see, Brian K. Vaughn is a homophobe, mm-hmm. but it makes you feel a little bit titchy. So we turn back to Bruce Robinson then, because he's asked time and time again, what do you think it is that's made this film last so long? Why do so many people like it? And he says, what I think it does is touch that moment that we've all had where we're broke We're starving, we're aspiring, and all-knowing that it might not work in our lives. And for one of them, it does. Not definitely, but for one of them, it might. And that's that's the the Marwood character at the end. Uh, He says, I really think audiences also love good dialogue. Brilliant photography costs a lot more than crap photography. (laughs) Whereas good dialogue doesn't cost any more than bad dialogue. So even a cheap film can have great dialogue in it. So he wants to detach it from any sort of social criticism. He's saying that, you know, the the reason that it persists is because people can say to themselves, oh, I remember being poor and desperate. Yeah. And I could have gone one way or the other. Uh, And as, as amazing as with nails sort of effect is, I want to transcend that situation. And I can see that the eye character Marwood is doing it. And then Grant goes on to point out, this is the segment that I was thinking of earlier. He says, it's a rite of passage for young men, specifically young British men. He says, they've told me that at Oxford watching this film is like losing your virginity. It's an initiation ritual. If you haven't seen it, you must see it. It becomes a prerequisite. And, uh, Etonians, these are the students of Eton college thought, that it was about them other people then thought no it's about us so then it crosses over between cultures he says this is a movie that is about the young british male they're the ones who relate to this 
what I've noticed is it appeals far more to men than it does to women. Yeah. I don't, I mean, it's been so long since I had a conversation about any of these movies with anybody, you know, like it's been a long time since I was in a pool hall quoting movies back and forth and saying, Oh, I love that bit, you know? So I can't exactly remember whether any women joined in or not. So we get this piece from Luke Turner next, and he says something that I didn't see anywhere else in the research. That's kind of blowing my mind here. And I don't know if, if I'm reading this the right way. He's, he's talking about why with nail and I has become something he's turned off from, even though he originally liked it. And he says it began in the nineties. And he says specifically the, he blames quote, the cheekily prattish figurehead of the gormless and garish braggadocio of the nineties lad culture, Chris Evans. I don't think he means captain America, Chris Evans. I think it is not different. Chris, Chris Evans, Evans is a presenter. Uh, he is, let's see, it says he started in radio. He worked on The Big Breakfast. Uh, okay. He had the Chris Evans Breakfast Show, the one show. He uh, was supposed to lead a new Top Gear. Oh, wait, I know this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's the new host on Top Gear. Okay. okay. Yeah, I know who he is. He is um, whatever the British uh, sort of bro is. <laughs> <laughs> well, although, although that's yeah. not even right. It is what... Uh, what Turner is saying, the uh, gormless and garish braggadocio, braggadocio of lad culture. Well, Luke Turner claims that this Chris Evans, not Captain America Chris Evans, <laughs> bought the coat that Withnail wears in the film for 8,000 pounds. And then he promptly went out and destroyed it when he was in a quad biking accident. God, you couldn't write something better than that. <laughs> it's it's kind of ludicrous. In my head, the whole time I was reading, I was like, man, Captain America did that? That's weird. <laughs> Wait, he was like a teenager in the 90s. <laughs> so really, if we take from Luke Turner what he's saying, um, this movie was about something more complicated than being um, a person who didn't give a shit what other people uh, thought of you and what you know was the center of attention and could go out and drink and uh you know and dodge gay men and all that mm -hmm. which seems to be a kind of like dude lad bro culture sort of thing in britain that it was about these two smart but desperate men who had a really deep friendship and yet the superficial qualities of with nail and i became the important part Mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. the same way that the superficial qualities of i don't know capitalism consumerism hollywood you know uh free market whatever you want to say became the important bits well uh he goes on to mention apparently if you can get a hold of the dvd and it's it plays in your region uh, there's a special on it and this special opens up with bruce robinson warning what happened to the actual with nail that he died young and we detailed earlier just how yeah. horrific his death was. Uh, and Robinson himself says, look, I was a heavy drinker. This is not good. And it's almost like a health and safety, you know, warning in front of this film when you watch it on the DVD. Uh, and he points out, and then Robinson went on to make the rum diaries, which is a Hunter S Thompson film again, like celebrating just a complete drunk. Except is it celebrating? 
I mean, the Rum Diaries are a portrait of a person who's trying to be something that he is not. I think it, yeah, I think it depends on, on uh, whether you're digging below the surface or not, as you mentioned. This is, it's all back to, um, can you wear a trucker hat? Ironically, it's on your head. Can you, <laughs> can you say that you're making a joke of it when you're actually wearing the fucking thing? Um, he goes on to mention the, you know, when you watch this film, they're, they have this devil may care attitude about drinking themselves to death. But he points out, he says, that's actually more to do with something that he refers to as a sadly deceased English bravado, the kind of mentality that had a member of the famous expedition to sink German warships in World War I packing through Worcester sauce to sate his addiction to shots of alcohol. Okay, that, uh, I kind of understand what you just said, but that quote is like too full of shit for me that I, I don't understand. <laughs> it sounds like it is the idea that the, like the, the great English alcoholic perseveres. Yeah. What I take from that is kind of back to what you originally asked. Why do people celebrate drinking? Mm. And there is a celebration of drinking that is not about I'm so drunk, I'm dying celebration, but more that a part of life is having a drink at the end of the day or being able to have a shot of whiskey when appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. That becomes then the sort of, my God, if you have the number of drinks that you think are appropriate to a, a, a gentleman in a day, you're an alcoholic. Uh, yeah. I, I can't. I Chris can't. just shrugged in like a, eh. I, I don't know how to, <laughs> to, to measure that, you know, because of my lack of experience with it. Uh, I, I will just say, you know, as the son of an alcoholic and like somebody who, uh, I guess is somewhat familiar with the program as it were, uh, I can recognize that behavior in other people, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily up to me to judge what the, the amount, the quantity is that can be drunk. Okay. Well, let's pull it out of this bit then and talk more about the fact that, um, there are two ways to understand these stories of, people who are uh, demolishing themselves because of their disappointment with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. There's a way to say, Oh yeah, this is how you do it. This is how one lives a life. You know, YOLO, like, uh, you know, I can drink anyone under the table, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, an old head might look down and see his grandmother crawling up his arm with a knife in her teeth and just think, ah, flashback, you know, these sort of, Statements of some kind of strength or experience versus the warning. Yeah. This will destroy you. This uh, Here's a portrait of someone who destroyed themselves. Please don't do it. But because of, you know, this is such a simplified version of it, but because the 60s uh, or the, the late 60s, early 70s connected drug use and sort of de-squareness mm -hmm. as like an, a, an appropriate reaction to the oppression and um, regressive sort of societal strictures. Then you get someone who's like, oh, well, okay, so if I get a little stoned, then I'll see society for what it is. So if I get really stoned, maybe I'll understand the secrets of the universe or you know, one drink and I can relax from this sort of consumerist mindset. So if I drink a bottle of whiskey, I'll be transcendent, right? 
Yeah, you know, I guess what I keep coming back to is what some of the folks here in the research have mentioned, which is just how privileged these characters are, and that it's hard for me to sympathize with their need to self-medicate, given how privileged they are. That, like, essentially, like, what we're saying here is, oh, yeah, I can identify with that self-destruction because the world is terrible, and that kind of nihilism makes sense to me. That, like, well, if the world is as bad as it is, we might as well destroy ourselves while we're in it and sort of celebrate that. And yet, I don't think the world was all that bad for Robinson and, and Vivian, necessarily. Or certainly not with Nail and Marwood. Yeah, even right now, I can say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned for the state of the world. I'm scared for what my kids are inheriting. Um, I worry about everything from... Uh, what will the, su- the supply chain be when we go grocery shopping again to how are we going to recover from this kind of, um, you know, collapse of activity infrastructure? Yeah. And yet things are kind of great in this house. Everybody I've been talking to has said something similar. Yeah. They're like, you know what? I never realized like how much I actually would enjoy something like this. Can I just point out something, Chris? I knew how much I would like to just stay in the fucking house. (laughs) I didn't realize there would have to be a goddamn pandemic for everyone to agree with me. Well, but I I am in a situation where this is okay for me and it's Mm -hmm. not going to be okay for a lot of people. But Mm -hmm. you saying you've heard a bunch of people say that means that we're part of this circle of privilege that that's exactly where I was going to go with it. All the people who are saying that to me are privileged enough to say that. And if I were to say, oh, my God, I'm so tired of being in this house. I'm just going to start drinking, man. There's a little bit of aha, you know, but also it's so utterly misanthropic and selfish to say I'm going to destroy myself because things aren't quite as great as I imagine they might be. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chain Links. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.